just as quickly as you're putting your team together to plan your network and to engineer that network, you need to be having all of the parties involved and all of the sign-off involving the, the financial structure, at least on a parallel path with your network plan. This is episode 307 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. I'm Lisa Gonzalez. When a community decides that it needs to invest in broadband infrastructure, they need to consider matters such as design, business model, and management. A critical piece of bringing the vision to reality is how to finance their project. In this interview, Christopher speaks with Tom Kovrick from Key Bank Capital Markets. The two caught up at the Austin, Texas Broadband Community Summit in May. Who better to get candid advice, lessons learned, and special insights into what goes on into financing community broadband network projects than someone like Tom? He works with communities looking to improve local connectivity by investing in these types of projects. In addition to the role of politics, risk, and bonding, Tom and Chris talk about a few different municipalities and their chosen paths. Now here's Christopher with Tom Kovrick from Key Bank Capital Markets. Welcome to another edition of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. I'm Chris Mitchell with the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, down for one final interview from the Broadband Community Summit in Austin, Texas. Welcome to the show, Tom Kovrick. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. You're the Managing Director for KeyBank Capital Markets, and you've been a frequent sponsor of Next Century Cities events and a player in a lot of municipal and lots of other kinds of broadband investments. That's fair to say, yes, we have been. We're a proud sponsor. We believe in the effort. You arranged for one of the first uh, special assessment districts, which we'll be getting to for, for broadband in Brigham City. So I, I just learned that, and I'm really excited to, to talk a little bit about those experiences. Great. Um, so, but let's get start. What is, what is KeyBank, and in particular, uh, the, the, the capital markets part of KeyBank? So KeyBank Capital Markets is a wholly owned subsidiary of KeyCorp. KeyCorp has uh, one of the largest uh, banking presences in the Pacific Northwest as well as in the Northeast. We are headquartered in Cleveland, Ohio. We have over 18,000 employees, and KeyBank Capital Markets, which is the corporate, part of the corporate bank, uh, also domiciles our investment banking and public finance practices, and that's where I am uh, headquartered in Chicago. And for the purposes of this interview, you understand municipal finance. <laughs> yes, I do. I've been a public finance banker my entire career, so my experiences range from working with large issuers, uh, issuing several hundred million dollar deals to smaller transactions like Brigham City, like we'll talk about in a few minutes, which was just about $3.6 million. I went through grad school focused on science and technology policy for a public policy degree. And in that time, I had an opportunity to take a simple course on public finance. And I thought, boring. I'm never going to use this. <laughs> and then I and spent we three are. years teaching myself stuff I could have learned in a few hours from someone who's qualified to teach it to me. So um, I think this stuff, just a, a shout out for other people, advice I give to all grad students that are going to work in public policy, learn how finance works. It's essential. And learn how politics plays a vital role in shaping financial decisions in municipal government because it, it sometimes that is a wild card. Right. So if, if I'm a city and I'm thinking about building a network, uh, what role does KeyBank play in that? KeyBank can play several roles. The role that I would play as a professional would be to work to bring a bond issue 
through the capital markets and distribute bonds to investors, public investors. But one of the key elements of our firm is that we can have several touch points, whether it's direct lending or whether it's uh, private placements with some more difficult credits or perhaps even CRA credits and things of that nature. So one-stop shopping. CRA is the Community Revitalization Act. Yes, it's it's important for communities and uh, and overcoming past lacks of lack of investment. Right, and it really does does have the initiative um, or the opportunity to eliminate or reduce the digital divide, uh, and that's part of the corporate responsibility that banks like. Key bank have in the communities where we do business, and I think it's worth noting that this is a kind of conversation that I think will be useful for a number of folks to get a, a better appreciation of how uh, banking works in the, in relation to this. But um, Jordana Barton with the Dallas Federal Reserve Bank has done a wonderful paper on broadband, the digital divide, banks, and the CRA. Uh, Tim Herwig, who's with the Office of the Controller of the Currency, is um, has done incredible work to try and make it clear that banks can invest in these sorts of projects. So um, there are resources out there where if you think you have a bank locally, um, you know, or if you want to find a way of taking care of this sort of thing in your communities, um, those are the kinds of things to, to be looking at. I think you have more options now because of their work. Right. It's absolutely right. So that's exciting. Um, well, so I wanted to get into a little bit about what cities are looking at when you're thinking about having to borrow uh, millions of dollars or for larger cities, tens or hundreds of millions of dollars. What options are there for cities? So cities are presently challenged, as we all know, with aging infrastructure. So deploying new infrastructure is not necessarily the highest thing on their uh, priority list. Oftentimes, as we've discussed individually, Chris, those New initiatives, such as municipal broadband and fiber deployment, simply fall to the bottom because of aging infrastructure, whether it's water and sewer lines or roads or other types of infrastructure. And so when cities are looking at their priorities, they pay for those things that need to get done first. And unfortunately, most of the time, broadband isn't something that is understood by a large number of municipal officials. They hear from their constituents, from their economic development folks, and from all types of other members and stakeholders in their community, even some of their own politicians, that this is something that's desperately needed to grow and to make sure that the cities remain competitive going forward. And priorities are important because cities have limitations and in how they can fund these sorts of things, right? Right. And so, you know, when you look at what's available to pay for this, um, it's it is still considered, from many perspectives, a, an infancy type of credit when you look at credit markets. A water and sewer credit has been around for 100 to 125 years, so those types of credits are deemed an essential service. Simply put, people need water, people need sewer. And so those essential services are typically very strong credits. Uh, and so when you start to look at you know, in, in introducing a new utility, many of the investors and creditors, including banks, are very squeamish about the future given the competition that municipalities face. And, and I would add on to one thing, agreeing entirely with what you said, is that uh, water is typically, not universally, but typically a monopoly product. So uh, as an investor, you know that um, you're going to have customers, whereas with a broadband network, you have to trust the competition of the network to get enough customers to pay back the debt. That's exactly right. And so um, when you have such a reliable revenue stream, like a water and sewer credit or even electric credit, those are utilities that have been proven over time and have strong ratings and strong uh, essentiality in the community. And so those types of 
credits are extremely well received by investors. On the other side, something as new as broadband, even though it's been around for the last 15 years, it's a relative newcomer to the marketplace. So we often hear cities offering bonds. Um, what what are different options? Bonds are kind of uh, many different flavors and and uh, options available with them. Can you walk us through common ones? Sure. The most simple type of bond is a general obligation bond. That bond is bu- is backed, secured by property taxes that are paid throughout uh, the local jurisdiction, the issuing body. Those tend to be very strong credits. Uh, those credits tend to be the most well-received, but there are other very strong credits that an issuer can rely on, a municipality can rely on, and those are things like motor fuel tax bonds or sales tax bonds or uh, franchise fees bonds. Those are bonds that are secured by energy taxes. So in the simplest form, uh, you have to really take a look at what's available to an issuer and what is the best credit and quite frankly, what the capacity is. Investors will ultimately look to see what the repayment cycle looks like and what the reliability of that revenue stream is going forward. There's also tax increment finance bonds, which I think many of us view as a double-edged sword for the challenges it presents to the rest of the the tax base. Um, um, My impression is we're seeing more instruments available and that um, cities are using multiple instruments often to figure out how to finance a project. You know, with the aging infrastructure and the demands that are being placed on municipalities for uh, revitalizing those, there needs to be more creativity. Um, There's only so many arrows uh, in the quiver that uh, municipalities have, so they have to be open to more and more types of uh, structures, quite frankly. And as those structures evolve, uh, the market will continue, you know, the folks that we sell bonds to will continue to have a growing appetite for them. Albeit some of those opportunities are at a higher interest rate than something as reliable as a general obligation bond. Right. And I want to I want to come back to that in a second. But the thing I just want to note was that um, cities do have a limit in how much they can bond for. That's uh, I'm sure there's complicated calculations to figure out how that works. Um, but I think it strikes me that there's a couple of key things. One is uh, there's a riskiness as a city, you know, engaged in riskier borrowing in the past or been less um, able to pay back its debt. And then uh, sort of size of the city, amount of physical infrastructure and things. What are the sorts of things I'm missing that go into that calculation? Well, at the end of the day, what you have to consider is market access. And market access is determined in large part by the municipality's ability to repay those bonds. The, the repayment of those bonds is, is stemmed from, you know, what is the tax base? What is the revenue source? How large is the city, to your point? And so as we look at those types of factors, we also have to remember that an issuer's rating is on the line as well. Uh, access to the capital markets at efficient levels uh, and preserving rating strength is very important to many, many political subdivisions. And for that reason, even though as a matter of practicality, they could certainly borrow a lot more, it may impact their rating. Uh, the more they borrow, uh, just like our own personal credit ratings, the more the more everybody you know burdens themselves with debt, the more stress there is on a credit rating. And so 
you know, there's a lot of different reasons beyond just the ability to borrow. It has to do with many other optics uh, in terms of preserving a rating. No politicians really want a downgrade on their a ratings downgrade on their watch, and so that has another potential impact to it. And, and cities don't want to go right up to that limit. They want to have some headroom in case something goes wrong. There's a natural disaster or something. Correct. Like that. Correct. That's a fair statement. So with the, in the interest rate, this is um, something that that again in grad school I spent a lot of time in macroeconomics talking about different things, and um, it seems to me it could be simplified that if you have a project that looks like it has greater risk, you will pay more to borrow. And um, that is an entirely reasonable supposition. <laughs> yes. Um, the more risky, the it's like anything else in life. The more risky, the more you pay. And some cities have um, offered debt that was not backed by uh, general obligation. Uh, for instance, uh, Monticello, Minnesota is known for having issued this kind of debt. They had a higher interest rate and uh, they ultimately had to give their bondholders a significant haircut. In a market like this, as you noted, was newer, it kind of spooked investors. And anyone else that wanted to use that found that the interest rate was unacceptably high at that point. That's a dynamic that I'm guessing you've seen in, in, in these markets regularly. Yes, absolutely. Uh, if, if, if an investor needs to be educated on a credit, the issuer will pay a premium typically. To have a successful project, we're often telling folks they need to get involved in engineering earlier than they might think. And one of the things that, that you and I have discussed, I've discussed with multiple people down here at Broadband Communities, is that financing remains a challenge. What do you want to be doing to make sure that, that you're going to achieve success with your project, particularly from a, a financing point of view? I think many of us have uh, witnessed uh, some really great plans by municipalities, uh, some great designs and some great engineering and some tremendous local support for the project. And then you get to a point where the question is, how are we going to pay for this? And that project suddenly goes dormant uh, because there's really no financial plan in place. So I, I would argue and throw out for debate, and I think I'm right, <laughs> that just as quickly as you're putting your team together to plan your network and to engineer that network, you need to be having all of the parties involved and all of the sign-off uh, involving the, the financial structure, at least on a parallel path with your network plan. So you have experience with uh, special assessment areas. Um, in some states, they call it different things, local improvement districts or all kinds of different names because states have to call things differently or else they wouldn't have an excuse to have a, a dividing line between them, I guess. Um, let's just talk a little bit about Brigham City and, and how that worked because I, I, when I learned about Brigham City in Utah, I thought it was a terrific idea. Brigham City is in uh, the Utah Utopia footprint, the network that's a massive open access network connecting um, many different cities, uh, more than 10 cities. Um, it had really struggled. They made some bad decisions, and they really were the, the recipient of some malice from the incumbents. I'm not asking you to comment on any of that, but I just wanted to note, I just came from a panel with uh, a person from Utopia who uh, she was discussing how things have really turned around and they're really looking good. Um, they are the most well-rated um, network in Utah. Like People love Utopia more than even Google Fiber. So um, as we're talking about Utopia, it's worth noting for people who are used to hearing it being discussed as a failure, it has done remarkably well in recent years. Um, part of that success is that Brigham City took it upon themselves to fund the infrastructure to finish the build-out of Brigham City. And you can tell us how that happened. 
So this goes back to 2009. So this is not necessarily a new concept. Uh, Brigham City is a utopia city that wanted to build its network faster than utopia would be able to build it. And in, quite frankly, utopia wasn't able to finance it at that point in time, given its current structure. So what Brigham City did was establish a voluntary assessment district, which is uh, allowed under Utah state law. Uh, as you mentioned, jurisdictions uh, dictate what uh, issuers can do and municipalities can do in with regard to these types of districts. But with regard to Brigham City, it was a voluntary uh, district uh, we bonded $3.6 million for those individuals and businesses that chose to have an assessment on their, I believe it was their water bill. I'd have to look back. It's been some time. But they they were assessed directly on, on one of their utility bills. And as a result of that, they make a, a, you know, a monthly payment or a periodic payment. Uh, and a portion of that payment goes directly towards paying this debt service. And so it was a unique way for them to to do that. I will tell you that the smaller the district, the more difficult you know we have as underwriters and and folks that place these types of bonds to put them into the marketplace because uh, the more finite the district, uh, the less there is for an investor to claw back on in terms of if the district was in fact failed, which is obviously not the case here. They paid on their bonds very very well and effectively. But right. that, that was one way uh, that that access to the capital markets was was achieved. And so to. To spell it out, I like to try and repeat some of these things for people that may not be as uh, familiar with it. Um, the people went door to door and they explained to people what it was, and and you borrowed an amount that was related to the number of people that opted in. And in the event that there was a, a default or some kind of event, um, the value of the bonds was not backed by taxpayers, but by the value of the homes of the individual people that were involved. That's a good point. In Utah, the statutes for borrowing with regard to special assessment districts are, are actually very generous. And so there are several remedies that an investor has in Utah that may not be available in other jurisdictions. Uh, in Utah, there would be a property tax, you know, a tax lien placed on the home by the municipality. If, in fact, that went unpaid for a period of time, there could be a foreclosure or, quite frankly, the city of Brigham City would have the ability to pay for though that portion of debt service from any legally available funds. So it could even have paid for the debt from its general fund. The statutes there uh, really strengthen and bolster that credit, but that's not available in every jurisdiction. Sure. And one of the things that I also heard was that, you know, I think cities are not likely to sort of ride in if you miss a payment and try to take your house from you. I, I think it's worth noting cities will often look for other remedies, try to work with you and that sort of thing in the event that there there is something. It's always worth knowing what the law says and, and what the options are available. But I also I don't want to scare people too much on this because um, I think it's an incredibly exciting um, option. It's being used in Idaho, um, where they call it local improvement districts. It's being used in the state of Washington, where they call it local utility districts. I believe the state of Colorado, just allowed the creation of these kinds of districts, so we may see that happening uh, there as well. Um, I, I, you know, I'm I'm very excited about it. One of the things that I was curious about is how that interfaces with other kinds of debt. So, if Brigham City uh, borrowed 3.6 million dollars from uh, these assessment areas, um, which again, to state, were voluntary. Um, if they had just put out a geo bond for 3.6 million dollars. 
would that have had the same impact on their um, amount of borrowing or the way that ta- the way that investors view their indebtedness? With regard to debt capacity, that's what we refer to that in the industry is what is debt capacity. Uh, debt capacity is defined in different places um, by different ways. It looks at overlapping debt, it, you know, the, the debt of school districts, park districts, library districts, what have you, along with the issuer itself. Let me just reinforce that because it's worth noting a city might be very well run, but if you're in a county that's really struggling, you have to take that into account. Yes, you have to. Con- that is one of the factors you have to consider because at the end of the day, the rating agencies, when they look at how to rate these individual and respective credits, are going to consider the, the debt burden, the overall debt burden on on a certain area, not just the particular issuer. And so, you know, what the industry has done is when we look at um, how these credits are structured, we try to get them as strong as we can, given the guidelines that we have from cities. And those guidelines vary tremendously based on political wherewithal and based on the individual stressors or, or strengths of a community. There could be a community that has a AAA rating, and they will just be so debt averse, even though they have the capacity, because they never want to ding their AAA rating. And so even though the capacity is there, the unwillingness to use it may override any decision that's made. But to answer your question, typically special assessment districts are limited in nature, and so they don't have an overwhelming effect on the overall borrowing capacity or the rating for an individual uh, jurisdiction. As we wrap this up, I'm, I'm curious if you have any advice for cities that are trying to figure this stuff out and, and how to think about it when they're approaching a financial institution such as yourself. What should they know when they're trying to figure out who to work with? To answer that question effectively, Chris, I think I go back to what we talked about a few minutes ago, and that is the plan of finance should be running parallel to the network plan. That's the first thing. Get your finance team together early. Talk about what your options are. Um, talk to your attorneys, uh, talk to your bond counsel, your local bond counsel, those firms that provide the tax opinions, because obviously you want to access the capital markets as effectively as you can and find out all of the different options that are available to pay for for the network, because there are many out there. And it may not be financed solely by a bond issue. It may be financed by a few few different pieces. Um, The second piece of advice I think I would provide is to um, understand that accessing debt financing in any form will require that a political subdivision, whether it's a municipality that's a city or a county or, or, or a town, what have you, will require to have some type of security other than just the system revenues. As we all know, these are expensive projects. The first few years of the project, they don't cash flow that well because there's such a huge capital outlay in those years. And so from our perspective, we, we we would strongly advise that cities really look for ways to bolster that credit because they will have limited market access and limited access to capital financing without having some, what I refer to as skin in the game. And that's very difficult for many municipal jurisdictions to get their hands around is they, they either they don't want to do that mm-hmm. or they're just limited. And I, I think skin in the game is a, is a great phrase because uh, I would support that just from an incentive point of view to make sure that they are doing everything that is possible to make sure that the network is a success. Um, t- if, if risk is, is apportioned in the wrong way, um, we could see more projects that are not as successful. So I, um, uh, I think skin in the game is a very smart thing to be thinking about. 
Right. And I think if you look at it from a potential creditor's perspective, whether that creditor is an investor or a, a large financial institution or a venture capital type of uh, investor, it's great that everybody has buy-in on the project. It's great that you know it's it's going to be transformational for a community. But unless the, the community is willing to assume some risk itself, you shouldn't be expecting anyone else to assume risk in your project with you. Thank you so much, Tom Kovrick. Thank you. That was Christopher with Tom Kovrick from Key Bank Capital Markets. We have transcripts for this and other podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. You can follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. You can also follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at muninetworks. Subscribe to this podcast and the other ILSR podcasts, Building Local Power and the Local Energy Rules podcast. Access them on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Never miss out on our original research. Subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ILSR.org. Thanks to Arnie Hughesby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle licensed through Creative Commons. And thanks for listening to episode 307 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. <laughs>